All right. Well, I think we're going to start the developer news. Uh, <laughs> this is the developer news episode 57. I'm Bill Clinton. And uh, for Monday, uh, August 26, 2013, actually, I'm Ken Rimple. <laughs> Uh, the, uh, the patriotic session and, and, and who I have on Skype with me uh, fellow patriot your name Joel Confino calling from a bunker in <laughs> King of Prussia you know there are a few in there alright <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sure you know probably at the bottom of the mall everyone hide it's the Deb shop here. We're safe. All right. Um, so there's a bunch of stuff in the in the uh, podcast this week, uh, a bunch of fun things. Uh, why don't we start off? I'll just kind of go through some of these in order. Um, first of all, there's, you know, I always love these technologies just to learn this year kind of talks. So Java World just came out with one called Six Programming Technologies to Learn This Year. And Joel, what do you think the number one? Now, of course, you're probably looking at it with me. So no, no, you, I'm not. I'm not. Oh, right. good. Even better. What do you think the number one technology people want you to learn this year might be? Well, this is a Java world, but I would say JavaScript. But yeah, <laughs> so right, exactly. So what well, is the? No, it seems uh, like there's a little JavaScript in here, kind of. Oh yeah, but, I, and I other peaked. things. I should have. You known. bad man, you. So what is it? It is Hadoop. Hadoop, Hadoop. mapping Hadoop. and reducing all over the place, man. That's right. So the statement that, that uh, now this is on InfoWorld, Java World, JavaWorld.com, uh, and the article is written by Andrew C. Oliver. And he says, <laughs> uh, I love his opener, technology moves fast. If you're stuck in the cube editing Java 1.3 or messing with Power Roller, now I'll just do a muffled screen. <laughs> um, then you probably live in an area of the country where there's only one employer. That's probably true, and I, I feel bad for you. Um, but yes, Hadoop, number one. And frankly, it's by any level as he says of buzz any measure of buzz it's dominant and all of these big data projects out there essentially wrap hadoop with lots of other technologies you know so Absolutely. so yeah this is the big thing this year at least one of the big things to at least understand to figure out when you want to do a map reduce kind of problem uh we're really interested in um i'm personally interested in learning more about amazon's redshift uh which is a data warehousing kind of product i mean amazon has uh, hosted MapReduce that you can use, and I've heard reasonably good things about that. But um, Redshift, uh, you know, we're, there's a little plug for the Data IO conference that's coming up that Chariot's hosting, and uh, I know uh, Eric Snyder from Monotate will be talking about Redshift, and I'm very interested in. Uh, neat, neat. Yes, that's a yeah. good point. By the way, for that show, it is chari- uh, emergingtech.chariotsolutions.com. I throw it on my site because I can edit it quickly. Um, <laughs> slash Data IO. 2013. Yeah, uh, that's the URL for that. And um, yeah, that's gonna be a good show that we've got a couple more people signed up for that now in terms of a speaker. So yeah, so I'm, I'm interested in things that use Hadoop, but maybe not using it directly. Right, right. Like pig or something like that, where it's a query yeah. tool on top of Hadoop. Yeah. yeah. Um, right. Okay. So the next one they had their list was MongoDB. And uh, it's funny, because I think we've been up and down with MongoDB in terms of our learning and using it in different things. But it seems like lots of companies are looking at it, especially when they're dealing with, you know, like JavaScript front ends or, you know, document type things. Yeah, I, it's very popular. I am not a big fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, but it certainly has a big following. And for getting up and running fast, it seems to work well. Yeah, I suppose if you're doing like it, well... I'll get to that one. <laughs> uh, there's one that directly hits into it, which is number, I think, four or five. And then, of course, Scala. Yeah, of course. Um, Love you know, Scala. Yeah. Love it. I, I really do. I see where you're headed. You're headed statically compiled dynamic. <laughs> no, statically no, compiled not, uh, functional programming. I've given in. I've actually given in. JavaScript is is the new hotness, and that's what I actually you know need to you know I'm 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 into that being 
the only language that you use on your entire stack. But um, as the reality, as a good choice for a lot of people. But I just love Scala syntax as an old school Java programmer. Yeah, yeah. I, you kind of think of like all the JavaScript thing is like that guy who does those uh, movie titles who died. You know, in a world where everything is written in JavaScript, you will exactly. use MongoDB. Yes. Exactly. So we got that going. Um, right. So Scala is on there. Um, and then we have uh, Node.js. Um, which I do think is an important thing because it's a very event-driven, non-blocking platform. Um, it's a lot different programming-wise than some of the other things you see. I agree. It's uh, important. I think it's important for everybody just to be familiar with that model. Uh, Vertex X or Vert.x is like the Java version of that, which I've heard is really fast. Heard some good things about that, but I think that that model is important and being able to run JavaScript everywhere. Uh, you know, write once, run everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I think is uh, really makes it important. Now, here's what's funny. Speaking of this morning, uh, Andy Andy Oswald, who's running our our Data IO event, sent me a speaker, and it was Lance Ball. Looks like he maintains the JavaScript language modules. Okay, for Rhino and Dyn JS and Modlang JS for Vertex. Mm. So mm. he's actually going to talk about Vertex, and the talk is async data from cluster to browser. Nice. Yeah. So speaking of, if you're going to that and it's a cheap conference, I'm going to plug it all the way through some of these talks. Yeah, it's good. It's uh, 80 it, bucks and uh, October 30th. So uh, again, not to plug it overly, but why not? Emergingtech.charitysolutions.com slash data IO 2013. Learn about Vertex. It's yeah. an alternative. Yeah. I've heard it's blazing fast. Yeah, yeah that's what I hear too. Um, and I think that I've heard a few knocks on Node being not as fast as they claim when they really throw benchmarks at it. So, Well, the um, truth, truth of it is the JVM has been is a rock solid super super fast, battle-tested platform that's been around for how long? 15 years? Yeah, long enough. And there's been a bazillion people who've optimized it. So that's the thing. That's really what it's up against. Any new runtime is going to have trouble being as fast as that. And it's not because Java did it overnight. It's just years and years and years of lots of smart people tweaking it. Right. I'll leave the next two up to you reading the article. I don't want to steal all of his thunder. Uh, So that's six technologies you should learn this year. Uh, Let's see. Hey, speaking of like a JavaScript technology, um, uh, Yeoman, which you talked about a number of times, uh, it looks like version 1.0 was technically released as of August 23rd. And so this is that um, quick uh, application setup tool that lets you set up different applications like, you know, Angular, Mocha, Node, whatever, um, just by typing a command line and then gives you generators, much like Rails does to create things like controllers and views and things like that. Um, I would say, even though it is a 1.0 product, can I complain for a minute? Sure. I'm going to complain for a minute. And, and, you know, hey, who am I to complain? They're going to say, you want you to contribute a fix. So fair enough. Um, but my rant, my rant is that I keep downloading these things that have templates that generate them, and I still find up oh, the police are after me. Um, I, I still find uh, that they break. You know, the scripts aren't building. Um, there's this thing called Grunt, which is like, kind of like an ant for the web, um, and it, it runs JavaScript-based or I th- forget the other formats, but JavaScript-based build script, and it has all these plugins. And so I set up the Angular one. And, you know, set up a, a project in Angular. I said, yo, Angular. <laughs> and it asked a couple questions and generated me a grunt file, and which does the build. And it generated me some testing in this uh, tool they call Karma, which is kind of like a unit and, and, and testing runner. And those scripts were broken. And I thought, hmm. well, if you've got a 1.0 product and you've got things being checked in, you've got to make this stuff work. Yeah. And then I spent a little more time and dug into some of the tests and some of the things they, they were doing. 
And then I wanted to add a few things. Well, some of the Bower, which is the dependency management tool as part of Yeoman, some of the Bower scripts that you try to load either are private or aren't properly written, like they're stubbed out and they don't quite work yet. So though the tool is 1.0, I hope that there's an easy way to start writing uh, quick bug reports against the different modules because they really do need to, to tighten up some of this stuff. It's not the same as what you see in the Java community, which is a lot more mature. Um, where generally when you download a dependency, it's actually going to be able to be built because it had to be released to be downloaded. These are all Git repositories that anyone can tag. And so what constitutes done? Yeah, definitely. So that's my rant. Mm. <laughs> so yeoman.io, take a look at it. I mean, it's pretty cool otherwise. I did spend the morning getting a phone gap build working with uh, Angular, and it's almost working, and I'm going to publish that at some point. But, uh, you know, like a nice Angular mobile app that can run on Android and iOS. Um, but, you know... Uh, I still had to do a lot of hacking of the basic template to get it to work, which uh, we need to work on that, guys. Hmm. All, right. All right. Can I do this one? Yeah, definitely. Go ahead. So uh, in the news, Steve Ballmer <laughs> stepping down <laughs> from Microsoft. If you didn't understand that, that was ding dong, the witch is dead. So I'm going to just let you burn yourself on this one. Joel, go ahead. <laughs> so... Uh, Steve Ballmer stepping down from Microsoft. I think he took over in 2000 uh, when Bill Gates stepped down. Yep. And um, you know, there's a interesting. There's a lot of news about that. Obviously, Microsoft's hugely influential. Ballmer, one of the founding members. And this article is called "In the Vista." No pun intended. Well, pun completely intended. Of Ballmer's Microsoft famous failures, but also solid success. So it's important, you know, just kind of a little review of what Microsoft has done. Obviously, is you know one of the world's most important software companies. Uh, under Balmer, one of its leaders for a long time, and they kind of go through uh, several things that were good and bad. So you think um, Balmer came in, and one of the the a couple of the failures were uh, Windows Vista, which really was a bomb, and uh, really after the big success of Windows XP was horrible and turned so many people off. And the reason XP lives today is because Vista was so bad that businesses couldn't move over. I honestly think the reason that that, um, that Macs are so popular today is and Vista. not Linux is Vista because Absolutely. Linux, you know, it's useful, but Vista was what OS X turned out to be, which was the next generation desktop. Yeah, agreed. Um, remember the Zune? Yeah. The Microsoft's version of the iPod, that was really You loud. squirted music to each other. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> if you shared music, you squirt. Wow. Yeah, that didn't yeah, happen. There's just so many problems with that. Um, <laughs> then, you, then you had um, – they had a, on a phone called the Kin. I think that lasted what a like, weird name. like a week. Yeah. Yeah. Or as they put in the article, it costs as much as a smartphone, but it's not that smart. So, <laughs> so and then, um, you know, and then some other uh, – let me think of some other famous bombs they had. I mean, really, Vista's such a big one. But, but the Windows phone platform in general just was a bomb. But you have to give them credit for some of the things that really were dominant – uh, for one thing, Windows 7 was a great uh, success after Vista's bomb. It got a lot of critical review. It sold really fast. It's a stable platform. Uh, and who would have thought the Xbox, you know, that the dorky programmers from Microsoft could pull off something like a super cool platform like the Xbox. And it is super cool and it dominated. Uh, and, of course, uh, Balmer, you know, maybe gets some penalized for this. But from a shareholder standpoint, he played it safe with Office and uh, you know the core Microsoft products protecting those didn't innovate as much as Google or Apple and didn't do anything game-changing, possibly because he was in charge of the game. 
So if he would have changed it, he could have, you know, hurt some of their core business. I mean, this is all editorializing. Obviously. It's hard because but, you're you're in charge of a giant company with lots of different business units. Yeah, so it, it's really interesting. So I think he leaves with a mixed bag. I mean, he um, obviously Microsoft grew tremendously, but uh, I think you know I think it's pretty well established that it kind of lost um, thought leadership or technology leadership, you know, to companies like Google and Apple. So the key, key thing would be, I mean, they have a ton of money, so it certainly can't be counted out, is this next leader that they bring in and whether he or she's going to be able to recapture that kind of innovative spirit that really helped propel Microsoft. Steve Wozniak. No, um, <laughs> that would be amazing, wouldn't it? It'd be like, dun, 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 um, but, my uh, first day, I was... Hi I, guys, how you doing? Point. Yeah, we're, we're gonna liquidate the company. So. <laughs> we're just gonna shut this down. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it'll be uh, it'll be really interesting. Well, I, I have a few things too. So um, you didn't mention the Surface RT or the or the um, or maybe you did or the uh, Windows RT platforms. Oh and yeah, oh, my staggering God. losses. They they had to take a charge of nine hundred million dollars for Surface RT inventory because no one bought it. Oh, my word. It, I mean, that's, I think, the nail. I think that's when he looks at it and goes, you know, maybe it's time to let someone else in. And he was saying he was looking for that, you know, future thing. Now, I wonder what the Newton cost Apple when they created it and it died. Yeah, that's true. There are always some flops. Oh, yeah. I mean, you have but, to have a flop to find a success. You've got to try the market, right? And I don't fault them for trying the market at all. Who am I? They've always seemed to be, tra in recent years, though, they've always trailed. Maybe You could yeah. argue that Microsoft's always trailed. Let somebody go in first and then come in second. Not always a bad move. Yeah. No, but Windows 8 is actually, I think, we've got to put on, at least for now, a failure because of its yeah. uh, just reaction that consumers had against it. It's like every other Microsoft operating system stinks and then the other ones are good. It's really weird. Yeah. But, um, but yeah. you know, Millennium, Windows Millennium stunk. XP was good. Oh, Vista stunk. Mm -hmm. Windows 7 was good. After Vista, though, I, I, that's exactly what cured me of ever opening another Microsoft PC. I had a laptop that, yeah, my last laptop that was a Windows one was this Dell yeah. Inspiron, also known as Brick That Can Kill You from Four Feet. And, um, <laughs> and it had this giant hinge, and the hinge kept breaking on it. And I just remember the hardware being a nightmare. And then I was running, um, I was trying to run Vista on it. It backed off to XP. And this guy uh, who's in our, our market still, he's a, a mobile developer now. He sidles up to me when I was working at this company and says, have you seen the new PowerBook? And I sat there and I'm like, I don't care if it's half as fast as my Windows box. It works. Yeah. And it doesn't crash. I want one of them. And that's the last time I had any Windows device. I just ditched Windows like the play. I'm like, you know, don't need it. And the only yeah. time I run Windows now is in a virtual machine, and I'm happy that it hides inside that box that yeah. I can close with anger when it doesn't work. And, you know, I mean, my sons have it. They went back to Windows. They're like, we hate the Apple because it doesn't play these 3D games. Like, well, that's definitely not my use case. I have to get yeah. stuff done, you know. Yeah. Hmm. It's funny stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I wish I, I I hope that the next Windows 8.1 really kicks it out of the park because they really need a win there. They really yeah. need a good, stable operating system for my parents and and <laughs> other family members to run that um will be a little uh less than like, hey, you only have one window open at a time and too bad for you, which was kind of one of the weird things they did. Yeah. And Agreed. I understand that's going away. They're going to go back to letting you have multiple windows on the desktop again. That's a nice feature. I heard about it in Windows 3.1. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's enough snark for now. Do you have another one you want to do now, or you want to um, do some of the little ones? 
Um, no, I, I was going to say I'll save the uh, the uh, big Twitter one for the end. Okay, I got a couple. I'm going to jump over to um, our, our chariot, Keith Gregory, because um, so he's reacting to, uh, and I think reading through and kind of commenting back on Steve uh, Yegi's old Execution of the Kingdom of Nouns back from 2006, which was essentially trying to flip people to think about, you know, functional uh, programming and verb-based programming as opposed to maybe REST, as opposed to, like, you know, lots of inheritance and things like that. Um, this is the famous one that, like, in Java land, if you want to write, like, a poem, uh, you know, a cautionary tale for the lack of a tail, I, of a nail, I have uh, no horseshoe, lack of a horseshoe, I have no horse, lack of a horse, I have no rider, etc. So in his, it's like, or in Steve Yegi's, it's, for lack of a nail, throw new horseshoe, nail not found, exception, no nails. For lack of a horseshoe, equestrian doctor. Get local instance. Get horses. Fetcher. Shoot. And it just goes on and on and on. To the time he goes to, for lack of a war, it's like twenty lines. <laughs> uh, hilarious, hilarious post. I'll include that in the show notes. But then, <laughs> so Keith then puts out a journey to the kingdom of verbs, and it's uh, His Royal Highness uh, DGR Terranovinium greetings, and so it's from a noun. <laughs> He's just basically saying, from a noun's perspective, he had no idea how to get data in and out of this world of verbs. Um, and then he found the answer. I'll jump to his, his punchline. I found the answer to this the question in the monadi. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny. So anyway, um, I'm going to point that out. And if you want a, a chuckle of a read, uh, check out his journey to the kingdom of the verbs. And then actually start taking a look at some of those really deep topics on a lot of things like uh, – you know, different programming uh, models. And I think he does things like uh, memory mapping and all sorts of interesting stuff in his blog and concurrency topics. So that's blog.katiegregory.com. Give him a shout out. Very clever. Let's talk about Spring for a little bit. I know that uh, some people listening on this podcast are probably Spring developers. So if you're doing Java E, you probably are doing some level of Spring or have in the past. So let's talk a little bit about some new releases. They're coming up on their new, uh, on their next um, Spring 1.2 GX, so it would stand to figure that there's going to be new releases of software out there, and there are a number of them. So first of all, we take a look at Spring Security, and Spring Security 3.2.0 is getting ready to be released. They have released Candidate 1, and so uh, the first thing in that is there's a cross-site scripting uh, attack prevention features built into Spring 3.2.0, uh, and so you know it'll try to keep you from having any problems with with getting attacked. So I included an article on that. I didn't really read it in depth, um, but it looks like there is a way that they can do this protection uh, in um, CS CSRF protection with a CSRF tag instead of your Spring Security tag. Thank goodness. Yeah. They, needed, they needed that for so long. Yeah, nice, isn't it? So, and they, they show you how to do it that way, and then they also show you how to do it, of course, with the, the crazy um, uh, Java config uh, way of doing things. Uh, and then they also tell you how to uh, protect CSRF uh, in Ajax. So they're working on that now, uh, and that's one thing. Then I posted another article that's a little more in-depth that talks about – these are on blog.springsource.org, by the way um, – is about how they do a lot of these things through some security headers in RC1. So they go into things like cache control, uh, to options for content type, uh, something interesting, HTTP strict transport security. So apparently if you go to like uh, tdbank.com, right, and, and I'm not saying they're insecure, so just <laughs> don't take that, but let's say you go to a bank is their, their example, and you type HTTP in, and then it decides to redirect you to HTTPS. 
the point is that you could have a man in the middle attack during that redirect where something can hijack and act like it's you know the HTTPS version. Mm -hmm. So there's a way of using a header called strict transport security. Uh, and it gives you a maximum age between the you know the redirects and where to go, and it's another basically another section called headers in the HTTP section, and HTSS, HT, HSTS is one of those that will force that. Um, also, there are a couple others in there, like for example, XFrame, um, so allowing your website to become a, uh, added to a frame can be a security issue. So you can add a header called XFrame Options Deny. And you do that through frame dash options to tell it to shut it off. So there's all sorts of cool stuff that they're building in there with Spring Security 3.2.0. I included the, the link to both of those articles. So those are two things coming up with Spring Security. Those are cool. I wonder what the browser support is for those optional uh, Yeah, headers. that's a really good question, and I have no answer for you. <laughs> but <laughs> I guess cool, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely looking future. Um, and uh, then the other one is Spring Batch. Apparently, Spring Batch 3.0 is uh, at Milestone 1 release. And what they've done is apparently they've integrated JSR 352. So apparently that's a JSR, and I'll say apparently 15 times here. Uh, there's, it's a JSR for batch processing for the Java platform. And as usual, Spring tries to see anything that's, that's a standard and allow integration with it. Um, so they do have that available to you in the first milestone. Um, they say that they pass 70 of the 155 tests for that particular uh, test kit. Um, and then they talk about various classes, like there's a job operator class, which kind of takes the place of two of their classes. Um, there's a standard XML schema for JSR 352 with things like job and step and tasklet and chunk and uh, you know writers and readers and things like that. Um, and so the Spring DSL uh, is a little different than that, but they'll support both now. Nice. Um, That's one of the reasons I really like Spring is they do adopt these standards quickly, and oftentimes they're the easiest way to use these different uh, standards, which otherwise their APIs are like a pain in the neck, and then you go do it in Spring, and you're doing the same thing under the covers, just like a nicer API. Do you remember years ago when they did, and this is right when I first started at Cherry, they, they did the first version of the JPA 1.0 container, and it mm -hmm. actually was the only thing you could quickly get going that worked with mm -hmm. in a web app, too. It was like yeah. done, you know? Um, that's just an example of that, you know, in, in other forms. Their, their JMX is really nice. Oh, yeah. uh, it's so much nicer in Spring than it is in the, the native whatever APIs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then there's, uh, you know, they have a lot of things beyond that uh, that they're doing. So look forward to, you know, more features being rolled out as they roll out future milestones for that. And then I have one more in here. This is more, did I mention Spring Boot yet with anything? Did I talk yeah. about that? No. Spring Boot. Yeah, hey, you know, I wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> and it was in a tool called Spring Roo. Yes. And I don't know what's going on. Um, I know that it's been going on for a while, and it's you know it's it's it kind of in maintenance mode right now. I'm not sure who's working on a next release of it, um, where that's going. But then I see this come off the horizon, and I'm like, what? Uh, yeah, another thing. Like, yeah, this seems like the same use case as Spring Roo, correct? Mm, so, not exactly. So read the comments of the post that I put out here from the sixth of August, because okay, uh, I threw one out there going. Err. What about this? Um, it, the yeah. one cool thing is it does directly support like this little groovy script. So you can do things like create a small spring script, annotate a class in groovy with at controller, don't even import it, it looks like, um, do request mapping and response body, and do a simple method that returns HTML content. And then you'd basically, from the command line, you do spring space run space your groovy script. And it turns it into a runnable application. 
So if you want a super fast, get it up and running super quickly thing, it's really kind of cool for that. Um, and they have a bunch of different types of sample applications that you can simply, you know, invoke and create. Uh, they have a GitHub repository. And so, for example, if I go digging into that, there's like an integration job in Groovy that is literally 17 lines of text. That's it, you know. And so you annotate a, a, a method with a bean and you create something called a flow. You pass an app context, you create an integration builder, and you transform messages. It's really simple to work with. Now, I think the issue is going to be learning the DSLs for each of these things. Yeah. Um, you know, for example, there's one like, uh, let's see, a uh, UI.groovy. What is that going to be? That's going to be some sort of um, – I should have looked at this beforehand – some sort of simple web MVC configuration. Um, so if you're looking to boot things quickly and play with some features of Spring, but you like Groovy, that's really the sweet spot of this. But then I read a little further on, and um, they also have this ability to um, do it in Java. Now, Java you have to build, right? You have to build a Java tool. Um, so they actually uh, have some starter POMs for Maven. Uh, or for Gradle or Ant and Ivy to quickly grab dependencies. You basically grab a dependency, the Spring Boot starter something module to point to their starters. Um, and then apparently there's a, a couple of Maven and Gradle plugins that let you do a fat jar, where instead of running a server, you can say Java minus jar, that jar file, and it will have everything in it. So you can just give someone a jar file and say, go run this. Interesting, right? Different. Um, but the minute you start attaching it to like Maven or something, it just makes me start to like my skin starts to itch. Um, yeah, I mean it's because I'm worth like I like the groovy but, version, but then yeah. you put Maven in it. Yeah, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm that's what Rudy is. Exactly sure. Yeah, I mean they even put in here. There's several people who comment on uh, this. Seems very similar to uh, Rue in, yeah. in in a lot of ways. It is. I think it's trying to solve the. So if I look at it dispassionately because hey, I've already written the book so there's no more stress on that <laughs> um, if I look at it dispassionately and, and look at them as they're trying to innovate in the space they had to get away from OSGI in the, in, in the shell right I think ultimately making the shell OSGI based was a great concept but as of all OSGI projects I've ever run into it gets heavyweight very quickly and you end up carrying feeding OSGI more than carrying feeding your project unless it's the perfect use case for it so I think that the OSGI part of Rue could really kind of slow you down if you're building add-ons, if you're, you know, trying to, to set up a set of tools. And so I can see where they went down the road of just doing it as a runtime tool as opposed to like a, a command line, uh, you know, engine that generates code. So I get that. And I think Groovy had to get involved. I've been trying forever to build a Groovy add-on to Rue and running in all sorts of weird aspect J problems with it. Um, so that's not involved either. So it's just them reimagining why not do something that quickly builds apps if the apps are simple to represent. You know, think about like Ruby. There's that uh, – what's that really lightweight framework for Ruby for building web apps that everyone – Sinatra. Would? Yes. So if you look at like a Sinatra style of programming, then I get it. If you're looking to make an enterprise Java app in spring with it i don't think it's going to be the thing you want to use i think rue still kind of is a way of doing that now and even grails to a, a, a maybe even a greater degree because of how mature grails is hmm. so i don't know it's an interesting third third rail now <laughs> yes um and uh so i guess phil webb uh dave sire uh are involved in this and i I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what they come up with here i'm really interested to see what they what they turn this into so that's another one. 
But hey, let's uh, continue on to something really super cool. Um, let's talk about uh, uh, Twitter. Do you want to talk about Twitter's uh, re-architecture? Sure. So, so the Twitter engineering blog uh, produced a you know a really interesting post recently about Twitter's um, new architecture. And so, as mentioning to Ken earlier, a lot of times when I see these things, um, they're interesting, but they're not something I could ever achieve. So while it's uh, meaning they're on some kind of grandiose scale or using some kind of really crazy uh, technology or have some kind of constraints, you know, and they're just not something that I could apply necessarily to systems that aren't Twitter scale. However, I think almost everything in this article you could apply to almost any application that needs any sort of scale. So if it's super tiny, of course not. But other than that, you know, really applicable to how do you engineer a good scalable system. And so it's a, it's a great post. And um, they started by saying, you know, that they had a, they reached a new record tweets per second, 140,000 tweets per second. Wow. And that they average at about 5,000. And in 2010, they had a famous, uh, I guess, problem with, I think it was the World Cup, like crushed their servers. And right. so they decided to embark on this. And so, th- you know, they said their problems that they had with their current architecture, uh, monolithic, uh, they were throwing machines at the problem, which was interesting, versus engineering a solution. So basically they're saying that the hardware, they were making new, you know, they were just uh, adding more and more machines, but the hardware was really underutilized and the code was inefficient. So they knew they should be, be able to get more out of these machines than they were getting. Right. So these are all like smells that you need to do this sort of re-architecture yourself. Uh, their storage solution was maxed out, which is not too surprising because it was temporarily sharded data that eventually made its way into a single MySQL master. I'm surprised they got along with wow. that solution very far at all. Yeah. And kind of a really another kind of good indicator that your system needs to be changed is they said they were painted into an optimization corner where the trade-offs that they were going to have to make for performance were going to result in much worse readability and flexibility of the code base. So it's kind of cool all those things are like good warning signs that you can use for your own thing. So then what did they do? Well, one thing that they got, 10-time performance increase uh, from going with uh, the JVM versus the Ruby runtime. I know that's going to start like a total flame war or something like that. I should say, Hadel, our product, <laughs> uses, we use Ruby, yeah, and we use Rails, mm-hmm. and um, currently we're on the JVM, uh, JRuby, but we very well may move to the, you know, to the native MRI. Um, the thing with Ruby is it's, it's nothing but upside. So it's not faster than the JVM, but you know, when Java came out, it wasn't faster than C and everybody said oh this will never work but um, it did and over time the JVM has been uh, optimized to the point where I really think it is one of the fastest runtimes out there and most stable um, so anyway they got improvement there I, I will you know caveat that by saying that's a great lesson but it doesn't mean that you can't you know have a really good app on the Ruby runtime and, and that so anyway but yeah. but they they moved to JRuby and it worked or JVM and it worked really well mm-hmm. But I think kind of the key, so that was a kind of an easy one in a way you could say just swap out runtimes. But I think one of the key things they did was decided on a service-oriented architecture, which often means something lousy. But in this case... <laughs> <laughs> something just, quick and hastily put together with yeah, lots of slap yeah, together. For, with, yeah. with a GUI and some, uh, you know, a flowchart. Please, God. This, was, <laughs> this, this means they really did decide that they were going to have independent services that manage the nouns in their system. In their case, that was user tweet pipeline. They align their organization around these services 
and so that dev teams could own a service for a long period of time. And I think that's really key. Oh yeah, strong ownership. The, all the short-term trade-offs you make to this code base, you're going to live with. So therefore, you're not going to be incented to make those short-term trade-offs. In giant monolithic shared code bases, it's nobody's particular mess. So people take a lot of shortcuts. So I really like that, um, you know, that idea. You know, what's, then, did, can I interrupt you on that? Sure, sure. Because I think that you hear like shared code ownership all the time, right? And I yeah. think probably in each team, everyone shares all the code for those things. Um, but, you know, like no one owns any one thing. You know, we talk it's, about Agile and things like that. This is kind of a – I wouldn't say that it's directly against that, but it's making a strong case that if you have to live with the results of your tweaking and you know that you've got a giant number of users, you probably don't want 25 people touching that code constantly that are all over the map. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But then they let those teams have some independence too. Yeah. So those teams could decide what they, they needed for their piece and build it and push it out. So it was really cool. So that may not really be any you know, data point that I'm making there. Go ahead. No, but then the other thing that I thought was really neat, you know, some of these other things are more generic, but uh -huh. they decided until we have these different services that talk together. So our system is going to be like these different boxes, right, that are all – and they're running different things. And each box is going to talk to another box. We're going to formalize some of the RPC mechanism between the two because – there's all these sorts of in a in a system that is complex. You have these things like um, back pressure. So what happens if a downstream system starts to fail? How mm -hmm. can it tell the upstream system I'm failing? Stop sending more requests to me. Things like that. Um, you know, in a system, if you don't basically, Twitter decided to formalize that between every node in the system. So all of these different subsystems had a standard way to talk to each other. Now they did different things. But they created a, a, um, a project called Finagle, which you can download and use for yourself, hmm. which is a protocol agnostic RPC system. So they said they might use Thrift or HTTP or all these things under the covers. None of those things, though, um, help you with things like uh, notification that things are failing and um, load balancing and failover strategies and all these kind of things. They built into Finagle. So every single service doesn't have to build that. So when you talk to another service, you know that it's going to provide certain things coming back to you, like health check kind of metrics and all that. So by building that uniformly, that made it much easier to build these services and have them talk to each other because they, they have sort of a standard contract. It's more like an operations contract. Yeah, really. right. You know, and I thought that was a really cool idea. Um, and, and they build a lot, apparently, into Finagle. This, this, th by the way, this feels very javascript or Node-like when I'm looking at the API because it's all futures-based. Mm -hmm. So you know, you know, you're going to get back the the, re the result that says "check me later," essentially. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah. and you're really writing asynchronous code no matter what at that point. Yeah. So Finagle seems like its own kind of thing that's well worth checking out. Oh, definitely, yeah. And then they um, used to round it out. They also rework their storage so that they do sharding with a product called Gizzard, and mm -hmm. then they have. Um, <laughs> Yeah, they had, the they, had to, they had to stick with the bird thing. <laughs> and then Snowflake for globally unique IDs. So um, I'm actually definitely interested in Snowflake um, to provide, you know, when you end up with cloud-based, or you know, basically any kind of system where there's lots and lots of nodes, you know, globally unique IDs is always an important thing. You can't rely on the database's unique ID because you have like 20 databases. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. And then to, to make it all work, uh, basically they said, you know, we traded our fragile monolithic application for a more robust and encapsulated but also complex services-oriented application. So the realistic about the trade-offs, you're adding more pieces, so it is more complex, 
So they said that we had to invest in tools to make managing this beast possible. Mm -hmm. And so they basically invested in um, monitoring, being able to observe things, you know, kind of tools. And they and they talk about that. And then, um, which so it's interesting you recognize that when you break things apart in this services oriented, you are adding a different set of complexity. And by building Finagle, by building you know these monitoring, they um, they address that complexity. And so you know, I think that the what do I know about systems failures, right? It all depends on the system and what's happening at the time and vulnerabilities and such. But uh, I wonder if they're going to have an issue with, you know, like a cascading failure situation because sure. they've got so many distributed systems. Well, I think, I mean, it sounds like they like the reason they put Finagle in there was so that in that sort of cascading thing, the client can be a lot smarter. Right. You know, and that was kind of like Finagle said some of the things they have in there is like failover strategies to direct traffic away from unhealthy hosts. That's pretty cool. So I, yeah. So I think that's really kind of like the key is to build in, you know, that layer that everybody, when any client connects to any server, there's certain things they, they get, health checks, connection pools, you know, all that kind of stuff. I, I really think this post in many ways is like a, a, not formal, but an informal roadmap for building a high quality distributed system. So, yeah. Uh, so I learned a lot of lessons. I thought it was good. It's cool. I mean, I'm looking at the, the Twitter slash Finagle project on GitHub, and you see, like, there's all these adapters, right? Um, Finagle HTTP, um, Kestrel, Memcached, Mux, MySQL, Native, Redis, all these different pieces that look – some of them appear to be direct, like, adapters. So, you know, when you're connecting this thing up, you're able to, to say, I want to use, maybe through a particular driver or something, I want to use this particular type of transport, but at least the data goes in and out commonly. That's yeah. really neat. Yeah. Very cool. Something yeah. to check out, definitely. All right. And then um, I think we had one more thing, but I don't know if you want to cover it this week or next. Um, <laughs> if we're ready to, to call it quits uh, or not. And there was one more. Where is it on here? Um Oh, hey, is the is the era of the personal computer over? Since we're to, let's go back to Balmer for a second, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think it's done? I don't know if it is or not, but um, you have something in all things digital here from last year, um, September fifteenth. Uh, that we're it's the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know what? it's interesting because they said that they determined it's the end because memory. Uh, let's see, the tipping point came flash memory. Yeah, when fl when PCs did not consume the majority of commodity member memory oh, chips. Oh, yeah, so there's so more, yeah. yeah, more non-PCs. So the reason I think it is the end of the PC era is like two things. Is one is um, my mother-in-law just purchased a tablet. My so, mother just did. Yeah, and so sh with the addition of a Bluetooth keyboard, she did not purchase an additional PC. She needed a new new computer, but the computer she got was a tablet, which was a. Uh, a really nice Android tablet, 10-inch Samsung thing. Yeah. And so, and the other thing is my kids. So my kids are young, and they use uh, the iPad. They're young, like they're preschool age, and so I thought about, you know, I'm going to buy them like a nice shiny new iMac. And um, who am I kidding? I'm going to buy myself a nice new shiny <laughs> iMac, and they're going to use it sometimes. They'll have some and, safe <laughs> account that like that's the nothing. But, yeah. But you know when I thought about it, I thought, you know, Here's I should chess. do that. I should. <laughs> I should do that. <laughs> But, you know, really, is this um, something that only programmers are going to use anymore? Or, and is everybody really going to move to tablets and phones? And so this is going to be teaching them, like, how to use a rotary phone because nobody's going to sit down at a keyboard and a mouse 
a, a thing. Like that's going to become this ridiculous way to use a computer. I'm going to feel sad. I, I, I like the experience of working on a desktop with, you know, putting things in folders and, you know, running multiple tasks at once and being able to put them next to each other and compare things. But you're right. That's really a, a software developer or like a power users thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, that's another reason why Microsoft has to reinvent itself because they were the king of the Wintel era. And uh, if if the tablets are the new king, um, you know, or phones, I, I don't know. Tablets are really good laptops. I mean, if you look at yeah, the, I mean, laptops are 400, 500 bucks now. Who's making money on one of those things? I mean, I, I, don't I don't, and if you, if, I mean, it is a PC if you combine it with a little Bluetooth keyboard, you oh, know, yeah. if you like to type. I mean, it, it, really, I couldn't think of a ton of use cases where you couldn't use that. I mean, you know, for high-end graphics processing, maybe. Um, you know, for programming, of course, but yeah. there's a lot of cases where, um, you know, a high-powered tablet and a Bluetooth keyboard is totally fine. I mean, even programming. I mean, think about it. If you start having uh, your actual PC or your um, your developer machine is like an Amazon EC2 instance, then um, what your all your all your laptop is is a dumb terminal. You know, so, the thing is that's true. But I'll tell you what. Right now, I'll, I'll diverge from you slightly in my opinion on this. Um, because I think that you're right. I think the, the hardware is here now. I think, I, and I think, by the way, Android is the answer for it. I honestly do. Because, you know, the, the Kickstarter for, um, uh, for Ubuntu desktop or, or Ubuntu mobile or whatever it was failed by like $8 million. They were yeah. looking for 15. So I think that that effort's probably dead or going to take three or four years. Because um, they were looking to try to, you know, monetize enough to, to get developers on the project and justify the time. Um, so I think it's going to be still Android until Google suddenly decides to get out of the tech business and stay a, an advertising company, which hopefully they never do. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you get a mouse, you hook a Bluetooth. You've done this, I'm assuming. You hook a Bluetooth mouse up to that Samsung. Have you ever done that? I've not done the mouse. Oh, you got to do it. Oh, you got to cool. do it. Here's what happens. You, you, you hook a mouse up and a pointer appears. So you think, wicked, except for the fact that the usability stinks. Mm. I mean, I went, uh, so I had a consulting assignment, and this, you might as well share funny stories. I had a consulting assignment. I was teaching people something, and at dinner that night, I spilled an entire beer into my MacBook. <laughs> now, it sounds like I'm, I'm a heavy drinker, but I'm not. It's just the drink was heavy, and I had carpal tunnel, so there we are. <laughs> but, so I'm like, well, that's no problem. I brought my Galaxy Note 10.1, so I pulled the sucker out, and I sit down, and I'm trying to build some extra slides because I was at the end of the regular prepared material, and I was going to kind of mentor them in some of the more advanced topics, and I was really kicking myself in the head at that point, like, what am I going to do? I'll use the Android tablet. Meanwhile, by the way, in the corner, the uh, MacBook is on top of the air conditioning unit, having been emptied of everything possible, you know, and <laughs> toweled. And I'm like going, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. So so this thing is like drying in the corner. And I tried. I tried to use um, with documentation on a website. I was trying to copy and paste into any one of seven office programs. And none of them could take rich text properly. None mm. of them. Mm. So the cut and paste is really, really stupid. It doesn't work well. Um, and when you paste in, most of them just paste a big junk of text. Um, and if any one of these people could write a decent PowerPoint type program for a non-Apple tablet, I would be stunned because mm. they don't work. You know, they might say that they're fully featured office programs, but sit it up next to like PowerPoint or Keynote or any of those. Mm -hmm. It's just not there. So I think absolutely. I think I think the, the hardware is there now. I think that the software still stinks because Android, 
it really needs to do more. Like they need to have wireless printing as a feature, just like Apple does. And right now with the, with the Apple iPad, I wish I would have brought my iPad for that trip. And mm -hmm. I didn't because I wanted to play with the Android tablet. <laughs> and it was just like, kill me now, kill me now, because Keynote works. And, and I could cut and paste text from Keynote work wonderfully, although you really can't use a mouse. So that's the thing that stinks about using an iPad. You know, there's no free lunch. Yeah, yeah. But if they just, you know, you take it two or three more generations than Android and make Android developing teams think desktop replacement is also an option. You mm -hmm. know, that people will use these things and they will power use them. They need to think of the power users, not just the people that are trying to click into entertainment sites. Yeah. yeah. That will be the killer. If they do that, game over. I mean, who would want? If I could dock my, you know, 10-inch tablet, have it show on a big screen and, you know, use high resolution and have a mouse and keyboard work and I have like 256 gigs of flash RAM, I mean, I wouldn't want to have a PC. Yeah. You know? So I'm with you and I think you're almost there, but just Android needs more work. For the casual user, it's great. And for people answering emails and, you know, doing things like that, it's fantastic. They just need to take that next step. Just, I wouldn't want to be a person who's betting on the big tower PCs. Anymore. No, no, I wouldn't either. I really wouldn't either. You know, I was hoping that Ubuntu would get somewhere with their thing because it would really spur Google to try to keep ahead of the game. Mm -hmm. um, I Competition think is good. Yeah, I think Apple lost. Honestly, I think Apple, from a, from a UI perspective, their new UI, from what I've seen in the screenshots and stuff, doesn't look appealing to me. Mm. Um, I don't, I, it kind of looks very kind of washed out and flat. And uh, I'm going to hold off on upgrading anything that I have to that, I think. Um, and I just see it as more of like a, a repainting of what they've had for years, not so much a, a huge innovation. Mm -hmm. I, I don't see it, you know, I see that if there's any innovation, it's got to be in the Android devices right now. Hmm. Anyway, sorry, that's my rant. <laughs> Thank you for triggering a rant for me with your rant. That's good. No problem. <laughs> All right, cool. I think that'll do it. This is a long one. What, what are you, 48 minutes, my God. Hey, anyone who's still here, please, uh, you know, consider other lines of work. Uh, or a shorter commute. <laughs> All right. But anyway, so that's, that'll wrap it up for us. Um, you can subscribe to the Chariot Dev News just by going over to emergingtech.chariotsolutions.com, uh, clicking on the podcast dropdown and picking our show. Uh, you can find you know RSS and iTunes feeds there. Or if you go to iTunes, you can search for Chariot Dev News, uh, and you should be able to find it that way as well. So that's it. So for Monday, August 26th, uh, I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Joel Confino. And go write something, maybe in uh, Occam or C or something. All right, Joel, that's good. <laughs>